Hey, it's Jesse, and it's block party time. It's a virtual block party, not a real block. I mean, there might be a real block party happening where you live, but Max Fun is hosting a virtual block party. Until October 22nd, every Max Fun show is going to be running episodes that are welcoming, inviting to new listeners. So this is the perfect time to try a new Max Fun show. It's also the perfect time to recommend one of your favorite Max Fun shows to somebody who doesn't already listen to it. So if you like this episode of Bullseye, it's a perfect time to send it along to somebody, and we're very grateful if you do. We've also got uh, a radio station and some music playlists for a lot of the shows, and um, we're doing a volunteer event, uh, uh, lots of different interesting social media stuff, uh, all happening online, MaximumFun.org slash block party. You can be part of the volunteer event, MaximumFun.org slash block party. Tell your friends. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. John Carpenter has made an impact on film in two different disciplines. First, of course, as a director. There are so many iconic movies in his filmography. Halloween, Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, The Thing. All of them are brash, bold, and unquestionably the work of John Carpenter. So take the movie They Live, for example. That movie has a six-minute fight scene. Two guys punching each other in an alley for six minutes. When you see that in a John Carpenter movie, you know that was John Carpenter's choice. John Carpenter went to the mat, metaphorically, with a movie studio so that he could have six minutes of continuous alley fighting. But besides those fiercely independent movies he directed, he's also an incredibly important film composer. Carpenter scored many of his own early films, including Halloween, and the music that he wrote has influenced an entire generation of horror soundtracks. If you hear a score described as Carpenter-esque, you'll probably get the reference. In fact, Carpenter has more or less retired from directing to focus on music. The latest batch of Halloween movies, directed by David Gordon Green, were scored by Carpenter. And just in time for October, there's a new one, Halloween Kills. When Bullseye got the opportunity to talk to Carpenter, we knew just the person for the job, April Wolf. She's a screenwriter, a former film critic, and a devoted John Carpenter fan. So, Let's kick things off with some music from Halloween Kills, written by Carpenter, Daniel Davies, and Carpenter's son, Cody Carpenter. This one's called Unkillable. John Carpenter, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you very, very much. 
There are so many composers who've created what we might call the music of fear. There's, you know, Hans Erdmann scoring the 1922 film Nosferatu, Bernard Herrmann with Psycho. Internationally, you've got bands like Goblin doing uh, Argento Suspiria. And then today, you know, the likes of so many new great composers who are working in genre film. But you are largely responsible for an entire subcategory of music that we might now call Carpenter-esque. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm wondering, you know, like, to me, I'm like, I think I know, you know, when someone says Carpenter-esque, I know what that means. But how would you describe your aesthetic? Oh, jeez. That's a terrible question for me to answer because I don't know. I, I play the synthesizer with my son and godson. Mm -hmm. We score movies. And we primarily score scary movies. Mm -hmm. But moody, suspenseful films. And we use a synthesizer, and the new synthesizer sounds, and that's what's so much fun about it. I've heard that you like you enjoy kind of collecting new synths, collecting new downloads of of uh, different sounds to to experiment with. That you're just constantly, constantly trying to find what the new sound is. That's right. I actually don't do it. My my godson does that, but that's I've got what, people to do that. Is what you just? <laughs> <laughs> but but it's true, and. Uh, we keep trying to, to change our sound so that we did a, the first Halloween 2018. Mm -hmm. We scored that, and then we scored Halloween Kills, and we changed some of the sounds we used. And now uh, there's there's one coming up, uh, Halloween Ends. Don't believe that for a second. <laughs> Halloween Ends, and that we'll try to change up also. Well, I do want to talk about, you know, you said you do primarily score scary movies, but there was an interview that I read with you where you said that when you were young, you were attracted to the work of the English composer James Bernard, who had uh, worked on the early Hammer Horror films. So that's, um, you know, The Creeping Unknown, Curse of the Frankenstein, and many others. And that later in life, you actually got the opportunity to ask him why those scores were so disturbing. And he told you that, quote, he was playing seconds, a musical mistake that grates at you, that puts you on edge. Edge, end quote. I was hoping that you could talk about the artful, quote unquote, mistakes that you've made in your scoring. You know, why why is Halloween Kills or the original Halloween theme so grating on our nerves? <laughs> well, it's a repetitive. It's simple and repetitive and it, and it gets under your skin. It's almost like a round, but it's uh, five, four time and it repeats this little motif over and over and over again. And after a while, you start to, your, your skin starts to crawl. And it's just automatic from the music. I don't know. You just want it to be done. We actually have a, <laughs> we have a clip of that original theme, too. What you can't see in the booth is that John just wanted that to end. <laughs> I was just imagining myself as a 30-year-old sitting in a recording studio. I had three days for Halloween score, and I just I remember playing all that. And uh, uh, It still brings you back to that. It does. It, I remember that, yeah. Those were the good old days. I had hair. <laughs> Girls still looked at me. It was fabulous. 
I imagine you eating a sandwich over a few synthesizers, just trying to like figure it out, lunch on the run. That's it, exactly. One of the things I think that kind of stands out about your score, despite uh, the many imitators that come over the years, is that there's always seemed a sense of fun about it. Um, You know, your film music specifically, I am, of course, terrified by the images that I'm seeing, but there is this sense in your music that I feel is almost like an older brother who's taunting or daring me to keep looking at the screen to face my fears. And I was wondering, would you say that fun is a descriptor that you would put into your music or even into your process? Absolutely. And especially the process. That's why I work with uh, my family. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we can sit and insult each other and uh, not take it personally. No, we don't do that. (laughs) Uh, We're very polite to each other. Uh, It's Yes, it's fun. That's why I do it. And I can't believe I've stumbled on this at, at this point in my life. It's like a second career. Yeah. I didn't expect it. It came out of nowhere. And uh, I'm thankful for it. It allows me to keep creating musically now, which is a whole different process than movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love it. I just love it to death. Does it feel almost like there's a sense of ease to this part of your career than there was for the filmmaking side? Because there's so many stories about you kind of struggling to get budget, struggling to get this, struggling to get that. Well, movies are tough. and They're like going to being a coal miner. They're like working underground. They're rough and tumble, and they grind you down. There's so much stress involved. And yeah, you struggle, especially if you're a low-budget filmmaker. You struggle to get money. But uh, the music is just, it just comes easy, naturally. Mm-hmm. Blows is the good word for it. Yeah. It's a fabulous. Less stress. What's What would you say is the process when you're in the studio these days creating these scores? Well, we create scores to picture. So it's there's basically what we see on the screen as we we have a screen down there and we watch the movie mm-hmm. whatever it is and we score to it and uh, we've had scoring sessions with a director we've asked him questions what what do you want to hear here what are you looking for and we should say the director is David Gordon Green for That's both correct. Halloween and Halloween That's Kills correct. who's really really talented man anyway and he'll he would guide us and we would we uh, put uh, music to his images, and we, the idea is we score not only just the sequences in front of you, but the thematic material that's going on, the characters, mm-hmm. what's going on underneath the scene, what's going on underneath the the, the entire sequence, and uh, that's uh, it's fun to do. It's fun to find to find its discovery. And to find that and uh, and bring it out in music. And we should say your collaborators are Cody Carpenter and Daniel Davies. That's correct. Um, and are you kind of the band leader of this trio and they kind of um, fill in the sound around you? Or, you know, who who plays first? Well, I have the most experience with it. So I've done a bunch of scores. So that I would say that. But they, my son is, Cody is a virtuoso keyboard player so he i can't i have minimal chops as a keyboard <laughs> player and uh he he plays the tough stuff and daniel is just a creative 
creative on the sounds and finding them and bringing them in. So we all work together in different ways. I don't know that there's a necessarily a leader. We trade off. Well, I do want to talk a little bit about some of your earliest influences because I know that you grew up in a household that classical music was playing. Your parents kind of instilled that creative gene into you. The music that you're playing now obviously bears little resemblance to that classical um, stuff that you're listening to, but I'm wondering if you're still finding yourself returning to those classics when you're composing. Absolutely, always. I mean, some of the some of the music that I heard when I was growing up, I still listen to. I also listen to classic movie scores. The, what I mean by that is the work of not just Bernard Herrmann or James Bernard, but Dmitry Tiomkin, who's a brilliant composer. And um, I, I was very influenced by movie music and the music that my dad would listen to all the time, Beethoven, Bach, Mozart. Bach especially, he's my favorite composer. Mm-hmm. Your dad probably just put records on all the time. Yes, and he played violin and piano. And he was his own virtuoso in his own way. <laughs> Tried to teach me violin. The only problem was I had no talent, and it didn't go very well. I mean, that is a, a problem. <laughs> It's a huge, huge problem. It's a hurdle in that. Yeah. (laughs) But still, I mean, it's clearly influenced you. Uh, There's a a great interview that you did with Dave Portner from the band Animal Collective um, where you said that the original, or he said the original Halloween theme was like Chopin's funeral march reinvented (laughs) for the late 70s or 80s. And I was reading that and I was just like, oh, okay. All right. I could see that. Uh Uh-huh. That is a bunch of (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) My God, no. I mean, that's great that he said that, but no. My father taught me 5-4 time on the bongos when I was 13. That's the Halloween team. So from bongo to the big screen, that's, that's what it is. John, have you ever wondered what the score would be like if you just committed it on bongos? Oh, man, would that be cool? How do you think? It would be ridiculous. Uh, do you still play bongos? No, no. No, I haven't played since I was 13. <laughs> um, the a thing that you had tweeted uh, not too long ago, a few days ago before this interview, something I wanted to, to go back to again with musical influences, and that is that you love the band ABBA. Oh, oh. oh and they have a new album? Yes. And new songs? Oh, I'm crazy. I'm going crazy. Yes. Now, you said that this was like, it reminded of you like listening to their records in your room when you were younger. Can you set the scene for us? You know, you loved ABBA. Like, what what was that like for you at that time? Well, it's still like that. I still listen to ABBA. They're just, a, they're spectacular sound. And mainly it's the, well, it's the songwriting, but it's the, how the girls sound singing together. Oh, man. And it's great romantic stuff, and it's this cheesy Swedish stuff. I love it. I mean, you can't lend the new stuff. The one song is just incredible, and I can't believe it. They're old people like me, so, you know, it's great. But I also like, I mean, there's a lot of bands I like. It doesn't matter. Anyway. I mean, it does. I mean, like that's you've said before that you love the Beatles. There's a there's a populist sensibility to the the music that I've heard that you 
um, that you enjoy. Music for the people. That's yeah. what a pro call harem. Have you ever heard of them? Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, I love them. I'm a record store alumni, of course. Oh, okay, good. Good for you. <laughs> I'm impressed now. I'm oh, very oh, impressed. This is, that's what this interview is about, yep. impressing you. You know, you're saying this music for the people, but I see that in your film scores, too. I mean, not just in your films as well, but in oh, your really? film scores. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. That, I guess I'll take that. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, but that's great. <laughs> I mean, they they feel there's a certain kind of ex- accessibility to them that um, I think is is part of how they've prolonged in the culture. I mean, are you ever when you're composing, are you thinking about these these artifacts for their longevity? How how long this the sound or this music is going to stay within the culture? Uh, absolutely, always think about that. Think about that when making a movie or making the music or whatever it is. I was always tried to create for the horizon, for for oh, way in the, in the future. I mean, some of it now dates. I can hear the sounds of the music, and I think, oh my God, you know, that's really that's seventies. But uh, <laughs> that's and and I guess there's a resurgence in some of the sounds, some of the cheesy sounds from the eighties, some of the prophet. Uh, oh man, I I don't I don't care for them, but some people love it. Love this this cheap synthesizer sound. Yeah. I, if I could, I would love to bring up your Apocalypse trilogy. Okay. Because if I'm thinking about people who might be more prepared for the current moment of American or global <laughs> crisis uh, more than others, um, I think it might be you. And the reason I think this is because of the existence of your Apocalypse trilogy, which um, for listeners includes The Thing in the Mouth of Madness and Prince of Darkness, three films that uh, I personally referenced when describing my state of mind. You know, like, in, am I in a the thing mood where I can't trust my friends or neighbors. That's right. Oh, yeah. You know, am I in a um, Prince of Darkness phase where uh, there is uh, an all-consuming evil that will destroy all of us or, you know, like that that type of thing. Um, so I am wondering, do you feel like you are <laughs> prepared for this moment in time? Oh, man. It's pretty crazy right now. Uh, well... Uh, we're overdue for this in a way. Mm-hmm. That's what I keep hearing. And uh, it it exposes who and what we really are. Mm-hmm. You see how people behave. And especially when they, if you've cocooned for, for years uh, to protect yourself and then you emerge and go insane, then that's a part of it too. But uh, now I'm not prepared for the demise of humanity? No, no. I have a, I have an ultimate concern for man, mm-hmm. and for I really want man to survive and thrive. Because there's too, there's too many good things, way too many good things about humanity, and there's a lot of bad things. Mm-hmm. But the existence of music is incredible. That we invented that, and we. Give that to the world, we meaning the famous composer. Bach has written some pieces of music that I think are a reason to live. Mm-hmm. They're so beautiful and so, uh, I don't know, transcendent that uh, that's, uh, you know, that's, we are worth it. Mm-hmm. And I hope we survive this. I really do. Much, much more still to get into with director and composer John Carpenter. 
It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, with no limit on how much you can earn. It's amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So, when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash match. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is John Carpenter. He is, of course, the director of movies like Halloween, Escape from New York, and The Thing. He's also a composer. He wrote and recorded most of the music in his early films. His latest project is the soundtrack for the new film Halloween Kills, which he scored alongside his son, Cody Carpenter, and Daniel Davies. He's being interviewed by our pal and correspondent, screenwriter and former film critic, April Wolf. Let's get back into their conversation. I wanted to get back to some of the earlier compositions that you had, even before Halloween, because I think the first one that I remember that that broke out, I think, past the success of the film is the the soundtrack for Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I think it's also just now reissued as well. Um, I, and there's, you know, it's the, the film itself is also playing in New York, um, 4K restoration. Um, but that was not your first film, but it was, you know, considered by many to be the first kind of Carpenter-esque soundtrack that we would consider. Um, did you... Did you have any idea at that point when you were making Assault on Precinct 13 that you would continue doing your own scores for most of your career? Before you answer that, I just want us to take a listen to this uh, a piece of this score because it's it's brilliant. Now, this score, you're creating it. You're like, okay, well, I'll continue doing scores for the rest of my life. Or I can't wait to get enough money to hire someone else to do a score. I can't wait to to hire (laughs) someone else. There's so many incredible composers. And there were, there are. And, uh, but uh, I started in self-defense. It started because I had no money. And then it composing became a, a sort create a source of creativity in addition to the directing writing and etc and it became another voice i could employ and so i just kept at it do you think that in keeping at it it changed the way that you approached writing um did you find yourself thinking about how, what the score would be as you were writing something no that was always afterwards. Mm-hmm. I had I had no idea what we were going to do musically, except for uh, I, I had a I, uh, Halloween was uh, <clears throat> I, I had before I scored the movie. I mm-hmm. had that piece of music, but 
Everything else was done on the spot. Mm -hmm. So, no, I haven't thought about it. It, It's one task at a time. Despite the fact that you're telling me these are separate things, I still find that there is a lyricism to the dialogue that you write, though. I I still find I do. I mean, it, and you're. I mean, I'm not. I know you're not really writing too many lyrics into the scores that you have, but I do find that there's lyrical dialogue, especially because you are not um, a writer who shies away from monologue, and there are quite a few who who do. I think, and I think specifically, I'm. Prince of Darkness has some of my favorite monologues. And you're laughing. I'm not sure if you're if you love it still, if you're if don't, but like it's your it's your 1987 film starring Victor Wong and Donald Pleasance leading a group of quantum physics students who unknowingly confront an ancient evil found in a church. Um, but rife with monologues. And you have these two lead actors who are very in control of their vocal instruments. I mean, to me, it feels like music when they're speaking. And, and I think we have a clip of um, from this film, actually, of, of these two actors speaking. Suppose what your faith has said was essentially correct. Suppose there is a universal mind controlling everything, a God willing the behavior of every subatomic particle. Now, every particle has an anti-particle its mirror image its negative side maybe this universal mind resides in the mirror image instead of in our universe as we wanted to believe maybe he's anti-god bringing darkness instead of light why weren't we told the truth Without the technology to confirm, it would have been another legend. But he was our prisoner, not yours. We had a responsibility to warn the rest of the world. Only the corrupt I listen to now. Two of my favorite actors and my favorite people speaking mm-hmm. there, Victor Wong and Donald Pleasance. Loved, I loved them, especially Donald. He was really... Close to me. Mm-hmm. I was close to him. Well, that's all from me. So I don't. You're like, I guess I wrote that. <laughs> yeah, I guess I. It was must have been a dream or a six pack of beer got me there. <laughs> Is I, that your writing process? Uh, you read about quantum physics and then just down a six pack and see it. what comes that's out. That's all I did. Well, I did in one movie. A one movie. Oh God, it was it was Halloween two. It was the sequel to Halloween. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what was going to write, so that was the beer. I went right to beer, start drinking, and start writing. That's what that was. But not not on uh, Prince of Darkness. I was really uh, I was really invested in that, mm-hmm. invested in the ideas. Well, I'd never seen a movie that dealt with uh, uh, some of these issues, mm-hmm. some of the some of the quantum physics issues. Yeah, the the friction between religion and science. That's and right. Whether they can exist together or yeah, that fascinates me. It always has. Yeah. Did you ever grow up with the ghost stories or things that something that stuck with you? I read. Uh, my dad gave me a book. Uh, uh, stories of the classic horror and science, horror and fantasy stories mm-hmm. when I was young. I read those. Oh, they're spectacular. I don't know that my favorite. Uh, I loved H.P. Lovecraft. 
Um, but I suppose The Great God Pan by Arthur Macon would be one. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. They're all uh, they're all good. They're, they're great tales to tell or at, at night when you're maybe sitting with your honey and you can listen to the <laughs> listen to the stories. Um, one of the films where I think that it, it it has the DNA of so many supernatural horror things, sci-fi that was particularly contemporary when it came out, and then even more so relevant is the thing. Your film, The Thing, from 1982. And that is one of the movies that you did not write yourself. That's right. And I heard that the one of the reasons for your not wanting to write the screenplay for this this movie starring Kurt Russell, classic, uh, Wilford Brimley, everyone who's, who's anyone, Keith David's in this movie. The reason was that you were struggling with the ending of a different screenplay and that you'd gotten too in the weeds with it. So you thought it might be less happy hassle having someone else adapt this story for you. I don't remember it that way. I, I just remember seeking out a really talented screenwriter somewhere to take over this story. Mm-hmm. And Bill Lancaster was just that guy. Mm-hmm. And he really brought it to life. Uh, I would, I know, I've struggled writing. Uh, God, it's horrible. <laughs> writing is the worst. You sit there and you got nothing in front of you and, oh, Lord. And I used to smoke cigarettes in the old days, and that was just smoking all the time, trying to write something. It's horrible. It's a horrible way to live. I mean, you weren't falling asleep with the cigarette in your no, hand, I wasn't. setting the I, script on no. fire. The I should have, though. I should have set some of them on fire. <laughs> how many how many screenplays would you say that you've written that, that um, haven't gotten made? Too many. Lots. Lots. Yeah, a whole bunch. Well, that was the way I worked myself into the movie business is writing. Mm-hmm. You can actually, in the old days, you could actually make a pretty good living writing a script. And I had a, had a, a way of doing it where I didn't, I could kind of hang out and uh, have a good time and go out with girls most of the time and then write in a flurry and then turn it in and get paid. So that was a good life. <laughs> I enjoyed that. And then film directing, you know, really cramps your style because oh, you have to be man. on set. You have to be. You have to get up in the morning early. It's horrible. Horrible. I mean, yeah, what a what an awful career choice you made, John. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, I'm curious. The, the story, the original story that I had heard about you kind of struggling with a screenplay was something that, that I think would hit with a lot of people, especially the idea that maybe you can't figure out what that third act is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, like w- the fear of the third act. Like, what would you say in your career is kind of like the hardest third act that you've had to construct? Well, that one, that one was the... the was a book called The Philadelphia Experiment, which mm-hmm. was uh, finally got made by somebody else. It was a shaggy dog story, and I really wanted to make it because it was, you know, imaginative. But I didn't have a third act. I mm-hmm. hadn't. I didn't know. Now I figured it out. These years later, just thinking about it over and over again. But that was the hardest one. Uh, I couldn't crack it. I couldn't do it. I went to the head of the studio, and I said, I can't do this. Let's do something else instead. Mm-hmm. And that was Escape from New York.
I am curious, you know, we were talking about that kind of um, that third act problem. Do you have a third act problem when it comes to scores or to ending a song? No, no, that works out pretty well. There's a number of ways of ending a song or of the third act of the music, but that's an interesting question. Huh? It, it all depends on, you see how you end something all depends on what you've done before. Mm-hmm. The, if you've, if you have a main theme, then you may want to recreate that in, in different ways later. Mm-hmm. So, But um, that's interesting. I don't have a problem. I don't think we have a problem with that. Do you like the fade out? Do you prefer the fade out? Do that you want- works. Or <laughs> <laughs> anything works. I wanted to ask you about the two methods of scoring that you've broken down before for people. And one of them being what you call the Max Steiner way of Mickey Mousing, meaning that the score is really hand-holding the audience, telling them kind of what exactly their emotion should be in every particular moment or second. And then there's the more minimal method that leaves a little bit more room for the audience to decipher how they should feel. That's right. Max Steiner um, scored King Kong, mm-hmm. and every footstep of Kong, bum, 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 here comes the monster. You know, everything is told to you. Every emotion is fed you, which is great. But uh, then there's a, trying to think of a great example. Uh, Philip Glass is a great example of the other. His stuff is just nuts if you watch Kayana Scotsy, I don't know, that's a famous uh, documentary. He did the music to it. Oh, my God, I have no idea what the music is doing, but it's, uh, it's, it draws me in in a very different way. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's almost a, a, a chant that's going over these images. Very, very different approaches. I've been guilty of Mickey Mousing uh, before when I think it's necessary. I mean, that uh, there's being guilty, but it's also, it's useful. Absolutely. And uh, especially when you want to scare somebody, you just drop a little big sound in there and you got them jumping. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm Mickey Mouse with the best. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was talking about earlier, too, about the kind of populist uh, uh, sentiment in, in your scores and in your films. Or just like, well, I'm going to tell you, like, you should be a little bit scared right here. Yeah. Well, you know? rather you say populist sentiments, I say cheap thrills. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm after. I got the thesaurus out, though. <laughs> <laughs> you were also mentioning, you know, I, I think we can kind of put this in the same category, the way that sound design and score work together. Mm-hmm. Now, in your films that you were directing, that you were scoring, um, you had a, you know, maybe a tighter control on how sound design works with the score and how they kind of complement one another and, you know, when to use one, when to use the other. But I, I wanted to talk to you about this in regard to letting that go, because you are, you're solely in charge of the score when you're working on these Halloween movies that are directed by David Gordon Green. And there's a different sound design team who's using your score in in different ways. And I am wondering if it's a nice release to not have to think about that, if it's frustrating sometimes. Okay, he's giving me the thumbs up. So I'm... (laughs) It is so nice not to worry about that crap. I mean, really, uh, that's uh, that's the director's job to worry about that. I just give music, and then he does what he wants to it with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that the design 
played is duck dovetails with the score, and that that's it should. But a lot of composers use uh, uh, sound design elements, almost sound effects, in their scores, mm-hmm. and have for years. So, and I am guilty of that also. And uh, it's, uh, but you know, whatever works. I think that's just you know what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel though, when you are doing these scores for the new Halloween films, that you are, oh, this would work really well with this particular sound effect here or <laughs> no i don't know i you don't just think shut so. off that part no, of your brain I, it's all it's gone i don't care i don't care what they use there they can use a kazoo it's fine with me well you heard it here first it's going to be an all kazoo score oh, for wouldn't halloween that be great ends. wouldn't that be great bongos and kazoo and a slide whistle <laughs> <laughs> i love the second act that you have um the the, the third act is just complete comic scoring yeah um, the, the thing that I want to talk about next is something you brought up earlier, which has to do with improvisation. And you brought it up in terms of improvisation of music. But I still think that there's a bit of uh, of improvisation that you've done on set as a mm. director and in other capacities. You're right. You're, I have. I mean. I, I enjoy it. and it, But you have to find actors that love to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. So you know, a lot of actors don't want to don't want to get away from the script, the text. They, mm-hmm. they want to stick with it because that's that's their security blanket. Some actors love it. They just let them go, see what happens. Can I suggest that maybe one of those actors might have been Rowdy Roddy Piper, <laughs> uh, who who uh, is you were rumored to be found at the uh, 1987 WrestleMania three in Detroit. Yeah. WrestleMania three. It was a great WrestleMania, by the way. Had some great matches. Yeah, I thought Rod was uh, this this particular movie was about a working poor guy, mm-hmm. and uh, I kept thinking, well, who am I going to cast in this? Want to cast a movie star, a Hollywood guy? And no, Roddy is like scars on his face from his matches. He's weathered, and I believe him as, as a working poor guy. So it was perfect fit. Mm-hmm. And the movie that you are referencing is uh, the film They Live. In this film, I'm going to bring up this uh, anecdote that I've heard before. Um, there's an unnamed drifter, obviously played by Rowdy Roddy Piper. He discovers a pair of sunglasses that allow him to see the aliens that control every facet of society. Um, and he makes it his mission to take them down. Now, during one scene, Piper walks into a bank fully armed and delivers this iconic line. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. So Piper said that right before the cameras rolled on that scene, you said, quote, Roddy, you know you're going into the bank. You got a gun. You got sunglasses. You know you got to say something because you're not robbing it. Action, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> no, no. Roddy was very, I had to re- control what he said very carefully. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why? Well, we won't discuss that here. <laughs> Let's just say the 80s were a freewheeling time in terms of recreational use of various <laughs> substances. <laughs> I mean, they were also, according to this film, a freewheeling time of back alley 
wrestling mass- matches that oh, just, yeah. you know, took a... And I'm referencing, of course, when Rowdy Roddy Piper and Keith David, um, who you'd worked with previously um, on The Thing, you brought back for this, have a five-minute all-out brawl that feels like it can't end and it just won't. And you're not sure exactly what's going to happen, but it is so choreographed and you can feel the kind of... Um, how tired these actors are. <laughs> you can feel that like they're slowly breaking down. Yeah, well they but they were great. They we rehearsed this thing for a month before. So uh, the uh, Roddy and Keith and <clears throat> the stunt coordinator Jeff Amata just created this fight and rehearsed it, rehearsed every aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And then we shot it over 3 days. I had a blast. Just a blast. But don't you enjoy that fight? It's, I love it. uh, it's a cool fight. I mean, I it lives on. <laughs> but I don't think there's ever been a fight like that in a movie. Uh, nah. Is there anything in your career that you think that you fought for the most to to keep in? Well, in general, because of my training, I fought to keep my vision intact. Mm-hmm. And this came from film school. This is all our professors would say this. You have to maintain control on your over your movies, over mm-hmm. the vision. And what that means is final cut. Now, that's something that most directors don't get, and I've, I've had it, and I've also not had it. But final cut is, no matter what they say, you can say, F you, I'm going to keep it in. Hitchcock had final cut. And North by Northwest, the studio tried to get him to cut this love scene mm-hmm. between Cary Grant and even Marie Sane. He said, no, 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 I'm keeping it in. It's important. That's his vision. So I fought for that my entire career and suffered because of fighting because I don't like to fight. And that's one of the reasons I don't miss directing. Mm-hmm. I don't miss that confrontation with people. If they just leave me alone and let me have my vision, it would be fine. I don't know what the problem is. Yeah, what is the problem? Yeah, exactly. I love this other quote that you that you had that you said once, quote, you should be kind to directors. We need your love, end quote. Oh, boy. That's the truth, too. It really is the truth. We need your love. We need your kindness. What... Uh, you should be kind to directors for other reasons, too. You know, I've gotten constant bad reviews in my career. And I really want a day of reckoning with some of these reviewers. I really do. I have a list of them. I know who they are. I just want five minutes in a room. That's all I need with each one, one at a time. And I can solve all my problems from the past. What do you think of that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think something that is great about being able to interview you in person right now is I'm I'm seeing when we play the clips to the songs that in and score that, that you've done, I can see you playing. You are you are air keyboarding to these things. And that's something that, you know, listeners don't get to see, but you are still so vitally vitally connected to all of these scores that you've done. I am. I, it's true. I can't help myself. I ha- have to air keyboard an air guitar. <laughs> That's my life now. Air, air John. <clears throat> are there? But are there any scores where you you feel like you're done with them? 
done with them in what sense? Maybe that you are, you're past them. That uh, you don't want to uh, maybe play them live anymore or you're, you're tired of it or you've moved on from it. Well, some of the scores, well, actually, no, no. I was trying to think. You know, we had a, a set of uh, scores we played on when we when we toured, and I never got tired of playing it. There's one. There's this blues, this blues song, which was the, uh, the main title of "They Live," which was very slow and bluesy. But and, but I never got tired of it. We'll wrap up with John Carpenter after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com bullseye. A man goes to the doctor and says that he's depressed and that life seems cruel. The doctor says, ah, the treatment is simple. The great clown Pagliacci is in town tonight. Go and see him and you will surely feel better. The man bursts into tears and says, But doctor, I am Pagliacci. Ah, okay, says the doctor. In which case, try listening to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. The Beef and Dairy Network podcast is a multi-award winning comedy podcast and you can find it at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. Our guest is John Carpenter, the director and composer. He's being interviewed by April Wolf. As we wrap up, I wanted to bring up one last thing. I know. <laughs> I think that, um, and maybe you would agree, but sometimes the way that we classify or kind of qualify so-called quote-unquote horror directors to be a little bit reductive of some of their work because horror exists in all film genres. And some people have no problem being considered a horror director, but others find it kind of limiting and a bit self-fulfilling prophecy of it that they can't do anything else. You, of course, have done so much outside of horror, some of the movies that we already spoke about, then also uh, comedies like Memoirs of an Invisible Man, and then, you know, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, Escape from L.A. There's there's a, a really large body of work that all genres you've kind of encompassed. However, your Twitter handle is at the horror master. <laughs> so I, I wonder what your relationship is to being considered master of horror. You know, are you feeling okay with like being a horror director? Is is good? It's fine. I love it. I love horror movies. I love being a horror director. It gave me a career. Mm-hmm. Horror gave me, let me be John Carpenter. I mean, what's wrong with that? Nothing. Well, a lot of people would say there's a lot wrong with it, but I love it. And uh, I love doing horror. 
uh, when I wanted to leave the studios after I couldn't put up with their anymore. I went right back to horror, hardcore horror. Prince of Darkness was my first one after. I, I love horror films. So, no, I embrace that. I should put that on my grave, do you think? Or I'm not sure what I should put there. I uh, mean, there's a lot of cool stuff you could put on your yeah, grave. Yeah, I guess so. I'll be right back. <laughs> Here is the horror master. Uh, <laughs> Here lies the horror master. Yeah, yeah. Or at the horror. Make sure you put oh, yeah, your Twitter, at, yeah, your Twitter yeah, in there. That's it. <laughs> and, you know, as as a, you know, a person who considers themselves okay, like you are the horror master and someone who thinks that you should love directors more because of what they have to do. I have to ask, did you give David Gordon Green any advice when he was starting out, like embarking on this, not part directing of his advice, just story, story idea, uh, advice. That's all. Not directing. I mean, he's really a good director. Wow, I'm just impressed with him. And I know he took some hits for uh, Halloween Kills in Venice, the Venice Film Festival. But I think that movie's great, and I'm proud to be involved with it. No, I didn't. I left him alone. You should just love the director. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact, that should be on my tombstone. Just love the director. It's That's the truth. Love us. We need love. Even the most difficult of us, we need love. And, John, you are not difficult at all. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me here today. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. John Carpenter. You can hear his music in the new movie Halloween Kills which comes out this week. Our thanks to our friend April Wolf for interviewing him. April is a former critic, now a screenwriter. Her latest movie is the holiday horror movie Black Christmas, which is streaming now on HBO Max. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, I'm very proud to say that the rug I bought at the flea market a few weeks ago has emerged from the contractor's trash bag full of mothballs I put it in just to be on the safe side and is now nearly wall-to-wall in my living room. Very nice rug. After I I put it in, I I got home later that day and my daughter was there and she said, thank you, I love you for putting in a soft rug. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer, Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, recorded by the group The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries, for sharing it with us. Go check out their records. They're awesome. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.